Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. NATO is beginning war games involving Sweden and Finland. Also, President Putin threatens retaliatory strikes for U.S. long-range weapons if they are used to hit Russian cities. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Margaret Kimberly. Margaret is the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report. You can go to blackagendareport.com for more information and author of a great book. It's called Presidential, Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Thank you very much. General Mark Milley says the military drills are a show of force to Russia. However, Helsinki's intelligence says Moscow has not responded to its NATO membership bid. Margaret Kimberly, what's happening? Finland, Sweden, they just can't stop rattling uh, the Russian cage and uh, poking the old bear. What are your thoughts, Margaret Kimberly? Well, it's uh, it's interesting to me that uh, Russia was not that concerned about either country joining NATO, uh, despite the fact that Finland, in joining NATO, broke a treaty, a decades-long treaty that it had, beginning with the Soviet Union, in which it promised to remain a neutral country, something that's seldom mentioned. But that's not um, uh, an issue uh, with Russia. It's also interesting that their NATO membership is still pending, because Turkey has said um, Turkey has so far expressed opposition. Uh, the Turkish president, Erdogan, will probably, he's a hard man. He'll negotiate some kind of deal in return for saying yes. That's generally what he does. But this is, is really a, um, uh, just a show. It's just window dressing. It's pretend uh, defense against Russia, which isn't concerned about either Sweden or Finland. They are concerned, obviously, about uh, buildups on their border. But that's not what uh, Russia is worried about right now. And both countries, frankly, have harmed themselves by joining NATO. Uh, NATO demands austerity in that um, each member nation promises to spend a certain uh, a percentage of their GDP on the military. So this much vaunted uh, Nordic uh, quasi-socialism with uh, a generous social contract is now jeopardized, among other things, by uh, these two countries um, not serving the interests of their people very well and agreeing to join NATO. You know, Margaret, to your earlier point, as this is described as a show of force to Russia, I don't think that Vladimir Putin is concerned about this so-called show of force. This, to me, seems to be more for domestic political consumption uh, within the countries that are involved, uh, led by the United States. And I think I, I read in Garland, correct me if I'm wrong, that when this whole issue first surfaced, uh, President Putin said, I don't care who joins NATO. My issue is where you put your missiles. And if you put your missiles in the, and they're pointed at my country, now we're going to have a problem. Oh, yes, absolutely. Their issue was Ukraine joining NATO because Ukraine has been used as a, the tip of a spear against Russia. 
So they wanted a guarantee that Ukraine would remain neutral. So these peripheral countries joining NATO is not um, uh, an issue with Russia. But of course, the U.S. and the EU once again get it wrong. This this fantasy foreign policy creates all these problems. There's a fantasy about breaking up Russia or constraining Russia or doing um, turning the clock, clock back to the 90s and the West can um, um, pick over Russia's resources at will, none of which is going to happen, which has caused the current um, crisis. In the same article, Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Anderson says this shows President Biden's security assurances are followed by actions. Again, I, I think I think they're they're in this echo chamber talking to themselves because I don't know who's really rattled by these so-called actions. Go ahead, Garth. I'm agreeing with you, Wilmer, and I'll just state it a little different way. It's always narrative. We're going to do a show of force. We're going to demonstrate what we would do. We're going to scare people. We're going to, they're always doing those kinds of things that are narratives. And I tend to believe that narratives aren't even for Russia, that therefore like to brainwash the people in the West so that they won't say, why in the heck is it? that I can't afford fine baby food, I can't afford a dozen eggs, I can't feed my family, I can't buy gas anymore, and you idiots are sending billions and billions of dollars overseas, that it's like trying to brainwash the people. What do you think, Margaret? I think you're both right. Uh, this, uh, this, is, uh, this, propag- this war propaganda of the past few months has just been incredible. Uh, it's meant to keep Russia... Um, in people's thoughts as this evil enemy so that people will uh, go along with anything. But as far as, you know, Biden being a guarantor of anybody's security, they've gone behind Ukraine's back now and they're, you know, talking amongst themselves to try to find a way out of this situation that blew up in their faces. And Biden on Friday uh, talking about the jobs report. And he said, well, you know, we may have to have a negotiated settlement. And you never know, is that about Joe being confused? Or I think it's it's some, it's uh, it's usually something that's really going on that a president's not supposed to blurt out. But um, they are trying to find a, a way out. So the U.S., it turns out, is no guarantor of Ukraine's security or anybody else's. Russian President Vladimir Putin warned Western shipment of long-range rockets to Kiev will compel Moscow to hit several targets around Ukraine. In recent days, the U.S. announced it would send rockets with a range of 50 miles to Kiev. You know, Margaret, we keep hearing that everything's a game changer. This is a game changer. I don't think anything's changed in this game, but um, but there certainly is. We're getting a responses uh, to from the uh, the dangerous moves that they the 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 U.S. is making by sending other uh, weapons. What do you think the implication? of this are? Well, it's a red line. I mean, they have, you know, Russia's proven itself to be very serious. They're not bluffers. They mean what they say. Uh, the Biden administration thought of being slick and uh, instigating some little conflict so they could sanction Russia and kill the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It all blew up in their faces and there's a full scale um, uh, war. So uh, they, you know, when the Russians are like, don't cross this line. If you hit Russia, we're going to hit back. Um, And these weapons aren't game changers anyway. They either aren't really enough to do anything. They are too complicated to be used quickly. A lot of these weapon systems take weeks or months to learn how to use. In the meantime, 
Russia is methodically destroying Ukraine's army. They have a high number of casualties, and it isn't clear that they're going to have an army who can uh, uh, effectively use these weapons anyway. In fact, the title of this story is, uh, to your point, Margaret, Putin threatens MLRS transfers to Ukraine. No, he's not threatening uh, they later r- refer to it as warning, which I think is the bit more accurate. President Xi doesn't threaten and President Putin doesn't threaten. They they promise you what they're going to do. And they say here, Putin says, if it now comes to long range rockets and they are supplied, we will draw conclusions from that and employ our weapons that we have in sufficient quantities to strike those facilities that we are not attacking so far. Now, he has also said that if you put these types of weapons in Ukraine, I will strike the countries that provide them. And I think that's also a very important point for people to consider. It is. Well, this is all very dangerous. And, you know, once again, uh, once again, we are reminded um, how, you know, how much danger the U.S. and the EU and NATO have put us in that they want to act like, you know, Russia is some little pushover country. It isn't. I think they're too accustomed to beating up on countries that are a lot less powerful. And so they don't they are not taking this sufficiently seriously. I believe what he says. I also think they do, too. But they've painted themselves into a corner. And frankly, they aren't very smart. Uh, so that uh, presents a danger. But I trust that Putin will, would do what he says he will do. Speaking of people who aren't very smart, Ukraine may face a long war of attrition with Russia and Kiev's allies need to find a way to make their support sustainable over the long term. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said on Thursday, um, uh, uh, Margaret, we keep reading that the Biden administration and a lot of other people in the, in the EU are looking for an off ramp, that they're being crushed and they're afraid of the economic um, repercussions, but they have to do this bravado thing. We're in it for the long term. We're fighting Putin. We're standing up to the evil Russians. And then, like, we keep hearing that behind the scenes. They're like, oh, my God, how are we going to get out of this? Margaret Kimberly. (laughs) Well, I wonder if he said this before or after Biden said uh, there may have to be a settlement and they may have to give up something. But uh, this is a lot of uh, bravado. Um, uh, they don't know what they're doing. Russia is not giving anything back. That is for certain. Ukraine cannot all these alleged, you know, um, uh, uh, counter moves and are, are all phony. When you really look at the details, Russia is winning. Um, it's very clear. You, it's, you know, it wasn't clear for a while, but it most certainly is now. And uh, they may drag it out because they may. I mean, it's also a cash cow for the military industrial complex. So that's a reason. That's always a reason to keep a war going. Right. Um, So this is a, a lot of nonsense. This is a lot of BS. It could drag on, but it's not because Ukraine. Uh, has um, uh, any rights that the U.S. or NATO will respect if they decide it's better to come up with a settlement. So this is the kind of commentary that should, frankly, just be ignored. And even th- there are contradictions even within that one story. And to your point about these are uh, things that should be ignored, 
NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg, he doesn't really control anything that is independent. He, as far, as far as I understand it, he can't really act. He can only react and he can only carry out the dictates that he is given. He can't just launch into Ukraine as an independent actor. And he also uh, says that uh, he rejected the suggestion that Ukraine should avoid declaring ambitious war aims. But then in the same story, they say many U.S. officials privately doubt that Ukraine will be able to fully expel Russian forces. So he's he's basically, I guess, the, the, the crazy voice in the in the room. And they're just allowing him to exercise bravado and bluster while the saner heads, if there are any, are trying to find a way out. Uh, yes, I think there are some uh, uh, saner heads. There's also disagreement within NATO. There are countries, I think Italy uh, has put forth a peace pro- proposal. Apparently it's uh, dead on arrival, but they have said that there needs to be an agreement. Ma- uh, Macron in France, he goes back and forth. Um, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. are the most... Uh, 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 warlike and intransigent, at least publicly anyway, but they may change their minds too. So you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, NATO is not of one accord here. So he isn't even speaking for the entire alliance. Well, you know, Mark, and I'll end by saying this. The other part of it is this. They want a, they, they're starting to signal that they want an off-ramp. They're going to have to give up I would say a pound of flesh, they're going to have to give up 10 pounds of flesh because when Russia is winning, they don't, and might I add, in the economic war of attrition, they're winning. They're, the, the EU and the, the U.S. empire is going to need a deal a whole lot worse than Russia. And when they come with, to Russia with one of these, yeah, all you got to do is get back to Crimea and Donbass and we're ready to strike a deal, they're going to get thrown out of the room. It's not going to be quite so easy for them to get a deal as they thought. Margaret Kimberly is editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report. She's author of a great book, Prejudential, Black America, Black America and the President. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. President Biden's attempt to host the Summit of the Americas has become a debacle as protesters push back against the exclusion of nations that the U.S. has in its crosshairs for regime change. Joining us to discuss this, we have Ricardo Vaz. Ricardo is a political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Ricardo, welcome to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. Parallel to the Summit of the Americas, which will take place from June 8th until June 10th in Los Angeles, California, the People's Summit for Democracy will be held in the same city during the same time in solidarity with Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, countries that have been excluded from the meeting by the U.S. government. Ricardo Vaz, your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a great initiative. There are actually two counter summits. There's a second one called uh, the Workers' Summit of the Americas in, in Tijuana, Mexico. And this is a great initiative by solidarity groups 
to kind of push back against this idea that the US gets to decide who is part of the Americas and who isn't. And not only that, uh, I'm sure you heard that the Los Angeles Police Department actually forbade a march that was scheduled, but protesters said they will, will go ahead. So as you were saying in the beginning, this, this summit is, is turning out to be quite the embarrassment for the Biden administration. And they are now in full damage control mode. So having this march go on in LA against uh, US imperialism is kind of adding insult to injuries, like losing on home court and having having the fans support the, the away team. Uh, talk, uh, you know, go, uh, R- Ricardo, when you when you read, for example, the Washington Post and the way that they're trying to control this narrative that this is a test for Biden. Well, it appears as though he's already failed the test. Uh, they, they say this year's gathering has encountered controversy uh, because of apparent plans to exclude Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Well, as I understand it, there's no apparent plan. They're not invited. So there are, um, I mean, the way that the, that the dominant U.S. narrative is describing this is, is, is from what I'm reading from other sources around the world in a, is a total contradiction to reality. Yeah, it, it's damage control. And if they have to resort to these kind of euphemisms, you know that the, the picture is very bad. So, uh, and this was announced uh, over a month ago that if, if Washington insisted on, on these exclusions, then a number of leaders would boycott the, the summit. So among them, uh, Bolivian President uh, Luis Arce, uh, Honduras President Xiomara Castro, and most importantly, and, and the one who has caused the most, the highest level of desperation in Washington, Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador. And this is perhaps the the most embarrassing thing for Washington, is that this, this is supposed to be a, a summit to discuss a kind of common agenda with migration very high on the list of priorities. And... Mexico, which is one of the biggest economies in in Latin America, and perhaps the the country, or not, not perhaps it's really the country with the most migration issues to discuss with the U.S., decides or actually says publicly that the the U.S. has bungled the summit and it's not going to 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 treat it seriously. It's just going to send a lower level delegation, which is a it's it's really a slap in the face. For the U.S., but and, and, I mean, at Garland, the same time, sorry. Let, let me let me let me add one more one more point. This is from the hill. This is from the hill. The U.S. has not said whether it would invite Juan Guaido, the officially recognized acting president of Venezuela. That's yeah, what, that's I mean, how that's is, that's what the hill says. Yeah, I mean. Uh, I, I wrote on Twitter a few days ago that, I mean, we're not at this point going to demand coherence from the White House. But technically, I mean, if this guy is supposed to be the legitimate president of Venezuela, how come he doesn't get an invite? So now the only question, I don't think he's going to show up in person. It would be uh, perhaps a bit a bit too much for the other leaders who, who were kind of indecided, but in the end decided to show up. But some of the, the pieces today, I think there was one from Reuters, said that Guaido might be invited to a, to a side event uh, by a teleconference. But I mean, at this point, it's, it's, uh, it's embarrassing no matter what happens, right? Because on one hand, 
you lost the attendance of important guests like the Mexican president because he, want, he wanted to exclude Venezuela, but at the same time, you cannot double down on your ridiculous policy and, and invite this, this guy who, who claims to be president. Another thing I think it's important in the Washington Post story, they say the summit will help indicate how far the White House plans to go in assisting nations where decades of inequality and corruption, along with the calamitous toll of the pandemic, have fueled waves of popular discontent. Here's the thing about it. All three of those things, inequality and, and, and corruption, the United States has overthrown the governments of these countries over and over, committed mass murders and doomed them to inequality equality and more oftentimes was at the seat of the very corruption that we're supposed to be fixing. Then they say the calamitous toll of the pandemic, wherein the U.S. actually used sanctions against the three countries that they that they are excluding Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela. The U.S. instituted sanctions during the coronavirus pandemic that made it more difficult for these countries to address the pandemic. And all three of these countries did better than the U.S., as far as fighting the pandemic. And at any rate, your thought on all of that? Yeah, I mean, there's just there's just no way to escape it. And you can tell how how deep U.S. US exceptionalism runs in the veins of the people who write for the corporate media, that they write this stuff that, you know, these countries have been mired in poverty, inequality and corruption, despite U.S. efforts when they have been mired in all these issues because of U.S. efforts. And there's another, there was another piece that came out from The Hill that mentioned five things to look out in the summit, and one of them was a bit absurd, you know, like Kamala Harris is supposed to charm everyone. I found that a bit a bit hard to believe. But the one point that was missing there, and is perhaps the main concern, is China. So this meeting, or U.S. policies in Latin America in general right now, are mainly focused on countering China's influence in the region. But the thing is that if it's left for governments to choose, even governments that are sympathetic to Washington, like uh, Honduras or, or Brazil, it's not a difficult decision because the United States is not providing the, the kind of cooperation that China does. I mean, China is investing in, in infrastructure. As you, we were talking about the pandemic, China was actually much more useful in shipping vaccines to Latin America and allowing countries not just the, 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 the U.S. enemies, quote unquote, but they also sent a lot of vaccines to allies like Ecuador and, and to U.S. allies like Ecuador and, and Brazil. So China has been and, seem, and will continue to be, given its economic trajectory, a much more reliable ally for Latin American countries than the U.S. So it's not really clear besides threats. What, how the U.S. can actually uh, reverse this trend where, whereby its hegemony is, is getting lower and lower by the day. Uh, staying with that article in The Hill, uh, they, they talk about this so-called golden decade of the 90s, where they talk about there was a response to the military dictatorships, electoral fraud, and civil wars. Since then, however, the neoliberal governments that pushed aside anti-U.S. sentiment and embraced uh, technocratic rule have, for the most part, been pushed aside by region's voters. Well, they don't. The Hill doesn't seem to understand the history of neoliberalism, who brought neoliberalism to these countries, the Chicago boys in the United States, and that uh, this technocratic rule uh, that's been a pushed aside by regions voters 
But that's why the United States isn't allowing the leaders of these countries to come to the meeting, because Joe Biden won't respect the, the will of the people as a result of these democratic elections. Is that too simplistic, yeah. Ricardo? No, I think that's that that's that hits the nail, and it's not it's not something it's not like a, a distant memory, you know, this idea that the U.S. was going to topple governments that it, it it found threatening. I mean, we had a coup in Brazil just six years ago, and in fact, that that's that's a bit of a mischaracterization from the Hill because there was no golden decade decade in the 1990s. In fact, in fact, whereas uh, the global economy was on the rise. I think Latin, Latin America was the only region whereby poverty was growing in the 1990s. And that's why then in the 2000s, you saw all these leftist progressive governments sweep to power. I mean, it was really the, the ultimate testament to how neoliberal policies, which were implemented by the dictatorships as well, it wasn't just by the technocrats who followed, how they ultimately just sunk the, the region even more in poverty and inequality, and that's why it's always so jarring for anyone who has been paying attention to to read these these uh, analysts saying that the U.S. somehow is concerned about poverty and inequality. When in fact, poverty and inequality are the the direct consequences of these U.S. policies, which which are just meant to favor the interests of U.S. corporations in Latin America. Here's a perfect example of why people aren't coming. There's an article in Yahoo News: the U.S. will reportedly resume allowing Venezuelan oil to flow to Europe, people familiar with the matter said, and there it goes on to say the Biden administration's reported permission to allow for the use of Venezuela oil or Venezuela oil comes as part of a push to rely less on Russian oil, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the other, this paternal thing that the U.S. can determine the foreign, domestic and economic policies of countries that are not, um, that should not be in any way beholden to the U.S. Uh, uh, to, to the U.S. empire and then in the same breath argue that they're pushing for democracy. How does Venezuela have democracy if the U.S. is allowing them to act in a way that the U.S. feels benefits us and or our allies? Your thoughts, uh, uh, your thoughts yeah, Ricardo? And, and keep, in, keep in mind that whenever the U.S. is meddling in, in other countries, it always says that it's uh, defending the economic freedoms and, and free trade, and yet for, for an Italian and Spanish uh, oil corporations and very large multinationals at that, to trade with Venezuela, they somehow need permission from the United States. And, and also, we should keep in mind that this is something very narrow. I think it was the, the Reuters article said that these are supposed to be cash-free transactions. So the, the, the U.S. is simply allowing these uh, two corporations to recoup debt with oil shipments. So uh, it's not going to benefit Venezuela in the near future other than, you know, alleviating that. And it's just a way for the U.S. to... To, le to to leverage its its influence to try and and dampen the energy crisis in Europe, which in turn is also a consequence of the U.S. imperialist policies and the conflict in Ukraine. So, what comes out of this America summit, if anything, of value? Uh, I think we're going to. I mean, not to repeat myself, we're going to see a lot of damage control and these very vague statements, and you know, kind of 
try to create a, a feel-good atmosphere that somehow this is going anywhere and, and then hope that this fades from the news quite quickly and, and becomes replaced by something else. Because, I mean, given, given how the stage is set and the, the high-profile boycotts, I don't see how in any way, shape or form the Biden administration can take out any positive outcome from the summit. But we'll have to see, I mean, uh, in, in the coming days, if there are any more surprises. All right. Thank you. And just so people know, we got about a minute and a half. Your site, VenezuelaAnalysis.com. What do people need to know about that? Uh, I mean, we're an independent uh, website reporting here from Venezuela to counter corporate, corporate media propaganda. And if people haven't seen, we have made a great video explaining how U.S. sanctions work. So they should take a look at that. That's Ricardo Vaz. He's a political analyst and editor at a great site. It's VenezuelaAnalysis.com. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan described Europe's response to the Ukrainian refugee crisis as a panic in comparison to Turkey's ability to manage a similar refugee situation regarding Syria. Also, Ukrainian politicians and diplomats are launching verbal attacks at EU nations and politicians displaying anger over refusal to provide money and weapons as they see fit. Joining us to discuss this matter, we have Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and counter punch. Jim, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. Germany has been hesitant to send tanks to Ukraine to counter Russian forces due to, quote, historical reasons, government sources have told Der Spiegel magazine. According to the unnamed officials, there is concern within German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's government that Kiev could become overconfident if it achieves a series of victories and might launch an incursion into Russian territory. Such a development would mean that German tanks would once again be inside Russia, Der Spiegel wrote on Friday in an apparent reference to Nazi Germany's invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. Now, Jim, I don't suspect that they really believe that the Azov battalion is going to be pushing into the into across the Russian border heading for Moscow. But I do think that they don't trust Zelensky and the Ukrainians to, let's just say, keep their word. Jim, your thoughts? Yeah, this is getting incredibly dangerous and out of hand. And Zelensky is pushing the position uh, you know, the, he's getting very presumptuous. He's getting very aggressive. He's demanding more and more weapons. And he's pushing the the Western politicians in the position that they've put themselves in. You know, as uh, I've said before, the West could have said at the beginning of this, look, what Obama said. <laughs> you know, it's a nasty fight between Russia and Ukraine. It's not really significant to us. Ukraine is not going to defeat Russia. We can't make them defeat Russia. But that's not what they did. What they did was we got to help them defeat Russia. He's the good guy. They turned it into a cartoonish villain and hero story where Zelensky is a hero and and Putin is the villain. And we have to make them defeat the villain. This is what we have to do. So they're now put themselves in an ideological position that they can't. It's going to be very hard for them to sit back and see 
the Ukrainians lose. And since they're losing, Zelensky's coming on very strong. He says, you have to make us win. You have to give us the weapons that are necessary. You have to do anything we want. And they've talked themselves, American and Western leaders, into a position where it's hard not to respond to that. They've built him up as this character. So they're stuck. And in the meantime, what's going on is really World War II redux, <laughs> you know, with Ukrainian right-wing fascist ideology that really is the world war they really hate russia on the basis of right-wing fascist ideology that fought russia in world war ii and they want to attack they want russia to be attacked and they know they can do it themselves but they do think they can get the west and the u.s and nato involved in a war war on russia and they are getting that they're pushing towards that and the west and the united states politicians and the media have no way out of this at this point. They've got to say, no, we don't really think it's worth a war on Russia to maintain uh, the Donbass Republic as part of Ukraine or to acknowledge Crimea as part of Russia. We don't think that's worth a war on Russia. They're not saying that. They're saying, we've got to help them defeat. So it's very, very, very dangerous. And you've got Olaf Scholz saying, as being reported by Der Spiegel, that he's declared, I'm not Kaiser Wilhelm. And he's saying this. He's not only said this at a private government meeting. He apparently also said this again. He says, unlike Kaiser Wilhelm II, uh, I'm not going to let Germany slide into a major European war. So he he seems to be viewing this beyond Ukraine. And the so with him saying that, what I wonder is how much of this has to do with his not trusting Ukraine and more with his not trusting the United States. Well, I, I think the United States has taken a position aligned with Ukraine and the Ukrainian right. You know, they, it's clear. I mean, I posted the image, the video of Zelensky advisor saying, we, we have to get NATO into a war with Russia. That's what we want. And, uh, and the United States seems, again, they're the leaders of the Western world on this and of NATO. What the United States does until and unless NATO and Europeans break away from this. And this is what you're seeing. You're seeing people like Schultz and, and Macron saying, you know, do we really want to get into a wider war about this? Is this, we really want to get into World War Three or World War Two again? And they're expressing doubts about that, but you know, they're not allowed to yet from the point of view of the United States and, and Zelensky. So it is about trust, trust, mistrusting Zelensky, but more important for them, they could break with Zelensky if it didn't mean breaking with the United States. They don't want to break with the United States. They don't want to say, we're not going to fuck to the United States. Stop this, you know, because it's up to the United States, really. So they could say, we're not sending any more weapons, uh, but they can't quite do that. They, they got to fiddle around with it. And Macron has to make these ridiculous statements. I mean, Oh, we have to prevent Russia from being uh, humiliated when they lose this war. We have to give them a way to save face. And this, this is what it's about at this point. It's not about that. It's about whether you're, you're going to – the West and the U.S. is going to agree to essentially – they're the ones who have to find a way to save face or to, to, to go into World War III because Ukraine is not going to defeat Russia on its own. It's not. And everybody knows that. But they don't want to admit it, and they really can't. And they're not going to defeat Russia just because they give them some more weapons. The Russians will one-up any weapons that we give the Ukrainians up until the point where if you really want to defeat Russia, the whole world has to come in, again, uh, come in, in, in directly into this war. 
So that's what's going on here. But nobody wants to ignore. They want to say it's Putin's fault, and we, we are winning. But you know, we just got to give him a way out, which is the the only way out is to give him what he actually asked for, and will fight for. So it's very, very dangerous because people are kidding themselves about what is actually going on here and the state of play and the state of the war and who's winning and who's losing and what it will take to, to end this conflict without World War III. And nobody wants to face that. I mean, this is what Macron and Schultz dance around, but they have to come out strongly and break with the American Zelensky fantasy that's being promoted around the world. A couple of things I'm going to throw together for you, uh, Jim. Ukraine's ambassador to Germany, Andrei Melnik, on Sunday blasted the lack of heavy arms supply from Berlin to prop up Kiev in its fight against Moscow, branding such behavior a disgrace that will go down in history. Next, a bitter diplomatic row has erupted between Kiev and Budapest with senior officials of the two countries trading insults over each other's mental health. Let's go next. Ukraine slams Macron's remarks not to humiliate Russia. Ukraine says presidential Emmanuel Macron's comments about not humiliating Russia can only humiliate France. Here's what I'm saying. Who do these people think they are? I mean, I'm going to be blunt. Who do they think they are? This is Ukraine. They were the poorest country in Europe. And now all of a sudden, France, Hungary, Germany, you must do what we have to say. They're, I mean, it's like I'm looking at them and I'm like, well, first of all, they're kind of knuckle dragging fascists. So who respects them anyway? The only thing they have is the United States behind them. And they're marching around Europe, attacking everybody, all the people that they need, saying, how dare you not give me everything that I want? I can imagine that that royals, shall we say, frost the cookies of more than a few people in Europe in the same way that it angers me. Your thoughts? Although they, they got it coming, they deserve it. But your thoughts on that, Jim? Well, sure. This is, I mean, they have, he's taken the position that you owe us war with Russia. <laughs> you know, whatever it takes. And as I say, the, the, the American and Western media have promoted that ideology that we have to beat, we have to make them win whatever it takes. And he's, he's going to play that to the hilt. And, you know, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Ukraine really does want it. Their Ukrainian position, the Zelensky position is you have to give us anything we want and do anything we want to help us defeat Russia. And we have to put Russia in its place. That's the terminology they use. And this is what we're going to do with your help. You're, you're going to help us do this. So that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, but they're, they're like spoiled brats. So, you know, like the child of the rich father who goes around and orders everybody else and says, don't you know who my father is? You have to do what I say. Shut up. Take a slightly different take on this. Could it be that what Zelensky is not saying is. You set me up for this mess. I've been your proxy and don't leave me out here left to hanging left, hanging out here left to dry. Is that what he's is that what is being implied in not saying I didn't want to start this fight. I did it for you. And now here I am getting my hard parts whooped and you're you're hanging me out to dry. Well, that one can make that that's, that's objectively what is happening. In fact, and Zelensky came in and 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 ran for president on I'm going to make peace. I'm going to enforce the Minsk agreements. 
And if the United States and Western Europe, and of course it's the United States, Europe is only following the United States, had said to Zelensky and to the Ukrainians, you have to abide by the Minsk agreements, none of this would have happened. They didn't do that. They didn't want them to do that. They wanted to keep the pressure on Russia. And so the United States sided with the right-wing fascists in, in Ukraine against the position that Zelensky was promising in his campaign. Now, whether he was sincere about that or not, I think Zelensky probably, you know, was a little bit of a, of a little naive and a little, uh, you know, a, not a very sophisticated politician, thought he could get away, thought he could, you know, wind a middle path and persuade the fascists to put down their arms. But he didn't get the support from the United States for that. They wanted to continue keeping up the pressure on Russia. And they didn't tell him, you have to abide by the discipline. They said, we'll go along. Last year, that's what the Russians said. When he said, we're going to, he started saying, we're going to take back Crimea. We're going to take back Donbass. And the United States said, we support you on that. And that's continuing to be the position. So objectively, that's true, not just for Zelensky personally, although very much for him, but for Ukraine, that is, the United States supported the most right-wing, revanchist, despising Russia elements of Ukraine over the past eight years and built them up in power and didn't want to use them to maintain pressure on Russia. So now... What are you going to do? You're going to watch, watch Ukraine. They're using Ukraine, and Ukraine's going to be destroyed. Ukrainians are being destroyed by this, and the whole country will end up probably being split up. The Russia's going to end up where well, Ukraine's going to lose 20 to 30 percent of its, of its territory at the end of this. Uh, or not. How is that going to stop that? Who's going to stop it? This is extremely dangerous. EU members and other European countries are in a state of panic over the influx of refugees from Ukraine, Turkish President Erdogan claimed on Sunday. It seems to me that uh, President Erdogan, as there are some of the hawks here are saying we should kick him out of NATO and et cetera, some of the foggy bottom hawks, it looks like he's striking back. It really appears as though he's going to nix the Finland-Sweden ascension into NATO. And now he's saying, hey, we handle the NATO crisis and you fools can't handle it. Ha, ha, ha. Your thoughts on uh, President Erdogan? Well, first of all, the refugee issue is an important issue. And that this is this is going to destroy and royal European politics again. First, it was the Syrian refugees. And now it's going to be the and now it's the Ukrainian refugees. You have like three million people. You know, this this upsets the the social fabric of these countries and the economic fabric. So you can't deny this. And you know, so these, the Europe has been put through this a number of different times on behalf of America's state-destroying wars. And this is happening again. And, you know, uh, so the Europeans don't like this. And they're not going to – the European populations are going to rebel against it. Erdogan is playing a game where he's looking to get this, uh, the Americans to force the Swedes and the Finns to give up on the courage and to do what he wants. And he may be willing to get, he may be able to get them to do that because what's America's, America's put itself in the position where now it's claimed to be able to do certain things. And the, 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 the weaker countries or the lesser countries like Turkey and uh, Zelensky and Ukraine now push it. If you, you're going to, abide by your rhetoric on this, then you have to do that. If you really want to expand NATO, then you have to do this. And the Americans are going to have to decide what to do about it. And in this context, if their crusade against Russia is the most important thing, they'll try to force Finland and Sweden to do what Er Erdogan says. Erdogan's an opportunist in this, and, you know, he's not really in principle against uh, 
uh, NATO membership, I don't think, for, for Finland, Sweden. But he's doing something that may uh, and I hope will uh, sabotage that, uh, that their effort to join NATO. Wilmer, we got a minute. Did you have another comment? Uh, my only other, other comment is Erdogan is saying he's blocking this until his expectations are met, which tells me this he's not ex- he's extracting his pound of flesh and he's expecting to negotiate this thing out. Yeah, I think you're right. But he's asked for a lot. If they're going to get it from a boy, they're going, to, they're going to have to give up a lot. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. is using Africa as a proxy to confront China's economic growth. Also, the U.S. is hosting huge naval war games in the Pacific in an apparent effort to threaten China, and South Korea may be eyeing nuclear submarines. Joining us now to discuss this and more, Dr. Ken Hammond. He's a professor, writer. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. Dr. Hammond, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Glad to be here. The U.S. is set to host, quote, the world's largest international maritime exercise, unquote, later this month. Both Australia and the Philippines will join two dozen other nations for the massive biennial Rim of the Pacific, RIMPAC, naval exercise is scheduled for between June 29th to August 1st in Pacific waters, reaching from the Hawaiian Islands all the way to Southern California. You know, Dr. Hammond, I find it interesting that at the same time the U.S. is doing these major NATO games in and around Sweden in Finland, and at the and they're doing these um, maritime exercises. They're threatening Russia. They're threatening China. They just can't see decide who they want to war with next, Doctor Hammond. Well, they want to show. They want to be flexing their muscles and uh, rattling their sabers and showing the flag and doing all those patriotic militaristic things. Uh, pretty much everywhere. Although I think it's very interesting that uh, this RIMPAC exercise this year is largely going to be conducted. Uh, as the article notes, in the waters between Hawaii and California. Uh, you know, the U.S. has been very concerned recently about the Pacific. Uh, you know, China, oh, boy, what a big menace China's been signing a, an agreement to help out the little Solomon Islands with some of their economic development and, you know, helping out with their police force and stuff. So the U.S. is feeling very threatened. And I think that this, uh, of course, these RIMPAC exercises go on every other year anyway. But this is just the latest round of of, uh, trying to look tough, trying to show just how big and strong and all powerful and intimidating the American military forces are. And uh, so, you know, we get this in the Pacific. And as you say, they're they're doing these kinds of exercises in other parts of the world. Uh, They just they just want to have a finger in every pie and they want to make sure that everybody knows just how scary we are. I guess, Dr. Hammond, you have forgotten the adage, today the Solomon Islands, tomorrow the world. I don't know if you remember that. But um, so over the weekend, Australia's Defense Department accused China of intercepting its surveillance missions in the South China Sea. That, along with Newly elected uh, Philippine President Marcos Jr. Uh, is underscoring his commitment to upholding 
the uh, 2016 uh, arbitral uh, tribunal ruling in favor of the Philippines against China. What do these or do these signal anything to you? And I'm trying to understand how Australia is crying foul against China intercepting these surveillance missions. Sounds like China's doing its job. Well, that certainly is, uh, I think that's a, a little more uh, realistic way to look at things. Yeah, you know, I mean, Australia, uh, uh, as, a, as a junior partner of, uh, of American imperialism out there, uh, has been, uh, you know, running its naval operations and, and these aircraft. I mean, at least they're, they're straightforward enough to admit that these are surveillance miss- missions, espionage missions uh, that they're flying. Now, of course, they claim that these are all out in international uh, space, international territory. Uh, but of course, uh, what they're doing is flying directly over, uh, uh, you know, Chinese uh, territories in the South China Sea, territories that are, uh, uh, you know, occupied by part of uh, China's uh, establishment. And, uh, you know, so the idea that, uh, that Australia has a right to fly its airplanes apparently wherever it wants, uh, but China apparently is not supposed to fly its airplanes over its own territory. So that seems to be a little bit of, uh, of contradictory uh, thinking. As, as for the Philippines, it's interesting. You know, that we're going to see, I think, a, a, a mix of uh, stories coming out of the Philippines in the months ahead because uh, the, new, uh, the newly elected uh, president, uh, Marcos, uh, is on the one hand uh, certainly uh, going to try to promote uh, Philippines national interests. And part of that is uh, pursuing the Philippines' claims in the in the South China Sea, and they are one of the adjacent countries that has its own uh, territorial claims in that area. Uh, and of course, they're going to, you know, if you have a court ruling, even if it's one that uh, that comes from a court that not all the parties involved are even even recognized, but if you have something like that, you're going to you're going to tout that as uh, as bolstering your case. But Marcos has also been very very clear uh, in his electoral campaign and in his uh, statements since then. That um, you know he he sees this as an issue between China and uh, the Philippines, and you know they want to resolve this through discussion and uh, and all that. You know I don't think that um, I don't think it's uh, it's necessary to make too much out of these uh, uh, statements coming out of Marcos's office because they seem pretty consistent with a, a newly elected president trying to sort of establish his his, his chops, his credibility in uh, in in the relationship with China. You don't start off by making concessions, you start off by taking, you know, the, the strong line. And then, you know, we'll see how this how this process of negotiation goes forward from here. I did want to ask you about this. I was reading that uh, East Timor now is uh, signing deals with uh, signing a deal with China. They're rejecting the, the the U.S.'s approaches. It seems to me that a lot of these small islands and island nations around the Pacific are making a decision, and the decision doesn't seem to be that they want to host U.S. missiles and turn into the next Ukraine. Well, yeah, I think that uh, you know it's it's very dangerous to be a uh, a client or a minion uh, of the United States. The U.S. has made it crystal clear in uh, Ukraine that it's happy to sacrifice Ukrainians till the cows come home, uh, even though it won't put one single American soldier at risk. Uh, you know, and and that's that's uh, a lesson that I think people around the world are are learning. Uh, I think that uh, it's it's going to cause some reflection and, and some uh, maybe rethinking on the part of some places. But, yeah, little countries like, like Timor-Leste, and when I say little, I just mean geographically. I don't mean to be disparaging. But small countries uh, like uh, Timor-Leste and 
and the Solomon Islands and all this. Um, I think that they understand that there are deep changes taking place in the in the geopolitical universe, and that uh, they can they can you know pursue their own self interest in ways that uh, that uh, take advantage of some of these uh, changing relationships. If they can have a beneficial, mutually beneficial relationship with China, they want to pursue that and they want to have the freedom to do so. They don't want to be dictated to by Washington, D.C., by, by the White House or Congress or the State Department or the Pentagon and told that, you know, you have absolute freedom until you do something that we don't like. Uh, that's just not really the way that, uh, uh, that those countries want to be treated anymore. South Korea has nuclear subs firmly in its sights. New nuclear reactor deal with U.S. could give Seoul the fuel it needs to indigenously develop long-coveted co- uh, nuclear submarines. That's what we need more of in this world, Dr. Hammond, more nuclear proliferation, more nuclear submarines. Well, that this, uh, this idea coming out uh, right now that the U.S. is going to sell these small-scale reactors to, to South Korea so that South Korea can, I don't know, over the next 20 years or something, try to develop uh, some kind of uh, small-scale nuclear submarine capability, which is something they don't need. I mean, why do they need nuclear submarines? Where are they going to send them? Uh, they, their, their concerns, their strategic concerns seem pretty localized. And the idea of, uh, of uh, I guess they're going to station nuclear submarines uh, at, the, at the mouth of the Han River by the airport there at Incheon, uh, it seems kind of a strange uh, use of resources. But it also just runs so counter to what should be the goal, which is the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. It seems incredibly hypocritical, both of the United States and the ROK government, to say, you know, we demand that that North Korea stop its nuclear program. We demand that they, you know, dismantle their uh, their nuclear capabilities, and we won't negotiate about anything else until they've completely denuclearized. Meanwhile, we're going we're gonna to add a whole new set of nuclear systems to our, uh, our defense arrangements. And, uh, and, you know, the United States eagerly uh, is, is pouring on with this. So uh, the, 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 the double think, the, the dual standard, the, the, it's just the, the hypocrisy is just it's, it's so blatant and it's so uh, appalling that, uh, you know, you, you almost don't know what to do with it. Uh, you know, th- th- here's the other thing I think it does, too. I think it, it substantiates China's argument. China has been making an argument in their region that when the U.S. comes to a region of the world, it brings chaos, it brings war, it brings discontent, and it hurts the people. It doesn't bring anything better for the people of the region. And I think it was people looking at what's happening with the U.S.'s regime change operations around the Asian continent and the the AUKUS. We want no, more nuclear submarines. In you, Australia, we want more nuclear subs in South Korea. I think it bolsters China's arguments that the U.S. brings war and chaos to your region and that you're better off if you don't sign any kind of a cooperative deal with them. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, Ray, I mean, the United States is, is uh, you know, is, is revamping its own uh, nuclear capabilities. Uh, the United States uh, has been talking about, you know, I mean, the United States will not take a no first use uh, uh, policy position. It won't make that commitment. The United States is is actively promoting nuclear proliferation, which it is legally not supposed to be doing. Now, they're not 
delivering nuclear weapons to some of these countries, but giving Australia the technology for nuclear subs, giving South Korea or selling to South Korea the technology for these uh, little nuclear subs. Uh, If that's not nuclear proliferation, I don't know what is. Uh, So, you know, it's the United States is behaving in many ways kind of like a rogue nation. It's uh, obviously this is part of this this uh, frantic effort by uh, by the declining power of uh, of the U.S. to try to bolster its position in the world. But it's just it's reckless and dangerous. And and it's something that, uh, of course, uh, you know, the mainstream media isn't going to cover these things other than as uh, some sort of. A defensive response to uh, to to the war in Ukraine or something like that. But obviously, these are deeper policies. These are deeper initiatives that have nothing to do uh, with the immediate, you know, with these sort of surface events. But they're part of long-term American strategies of trying to to continue to perpetuate its power. Do you have any insight into whether this is South Korean President Yoon's own initiative, or is he merely? Uh, being used as a uh, by by the United States in following the United States initiatives. Well, it seems unlikely that that something like this uh, just got whipped up in the in the short period since the election there in uh, in South Korea. Uh, I suspect that, uh, and I don't I don't have concrete details on something like this, but my suspicion would be that discussions about this have probably gone on between. Uh, military uh, uh, figures on on uh, on both sides of the Pacific, uh, and now with the change in leadership in the ROK, uh, the new president certainly is going to be much more sympathetic to this kind of initiative, uh, and so now it can it can come out in public. Now it can come out uh, and and uh, and be a, an overt policy commitment. Uh, but uh, but I don't think this is, you know, it's it's. I don't think it's just that the new president is being a pawn. I think this is probably consistent with his uh, orientation. But I also don't think that this is the result of his election in the sense that he came up with this idea and now he's he's pushing it. I think that, that this was something that was kind of waiting in the wings and his uh, ascent to the, to the presidency uh, creates the conditions that allow the United States to bring it out. Uh, into the uh, into the public arena, and also, I mean, uh, the reality is the U.S. has the um, option of controlling South Korea's military in the event of war. So, if all you're really getting is South Korea is adding some nuclear submarines to the U.S. arsenal and having South Korea pay for it, uh, one minute. Exactly. Uh, no, I mean uh, you're quite right. The U.S. Uh, you know retains command and control oversight in, uh, in in for the troops, both the American and the South Korean troops, in the event of of hostilities. And so, yeah, this is just you know we're we're bolstering our own arsenal there uh, in a way that uh, that is destabilizing and and goes contradictory to the what should be the policies of uh, of denuclearization of the peninsula. We've been talking with uh, Dr. Ken Hammond. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The violence continues in Israel as four unarmed Palestinian civilians were shot and killed by Israeli troops over a 24-hour period. Also, Turkey seems to be preparing a military incursion into Syria. And in today's big news, Lebanon is warning Israel over a gas rig in disputed waters amid Israeli fears of a Hezbollah attack. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Thank you for having me, guys. Lebanon has warned Israel that any attempt to drill for gas in what it says are disputed waters in the Mediterranean Sea will be considered a, quote, provocation and hostile act. I understand that's a really hot story in your neck of the woods. You're in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith Marouf, what do we need to know? Oh, yeah, this is a huge story. Uh, there is the disputed waters between uh, Israel and Palestine that uh, for years now, uh, there's been attempts to negotiate to demarcate them uh, in order for both Lebanon uh, and uh, the Israelis to drill out of these uh, gas fields, which are considered some of the largest gas fields in the world uh, in waters. And, um, it, you know, in the last few months, both Hezbollah, the uh, Lebanese resistance movement had warned that if these waters are violated, uh, they will sink uh, any platforms that are there. Uh, similarly, the leader of the, uh, the Free Patriotic Movement, the one of the largest Christian parties in Lebanon, uh, also uh, warned that uh, the Lebanese government and military will respond. And out of the blue uh, came yesterday this news of a um, ship platform for uh, extracting gas is entering uh, the disputed waters uh, region. Uh, it is a Greek uh, company platform that is now escorted by submarines and frigates from the Zionist uh, Navy to protect it. Um, and since the morning here, Lebanon is up in arms. Uh, almost every party came out condemning uh, this move, including the quote-unquote uh, revolution change uh, members of parliament that just got elected, all are demanding that uh, this, uh, the line of uh, what is called Line 29, uh, the claimed uh, border in the uh, territorial waters uh, claimed by Lebanon, should be protected tomorrow. Some of these MPs of change, quote-unquote change, again, I'm, I'm using the quotations here, will be going down to the border uh, at uh, Ras al-Nafura and doing a visual demonstration. Of course, the Hezbollah and many other parties that are in the resistance bloc have uh, warned that and said that they are ready to take action as the minute that Lebanon as a government decides uh, that, uh, you know, their waters have been violated. So everybody's now waiting for a uh, decision from the parliament. We heard the prime president already speak, and we heard the speaker of the house. Now we're waiting for a, a vote uh, on uh, on that in the parliament, probably in the next two, 24 hours that uh, should allow us to know, are we going to war or not in this region? The Times of Israel is reporting about a, a mediation taking place over dis disputed maritime border. Is that related to this? And if so, 
is that going to have any out any impact on the outcome? Yes, uh, the uh, current uh, prime minister called uh, the American government to send the negotiator that has been uh, dealing with this dispute for the last few years. Um, of course, unfortunately, this uh, negotiator, Mr. Horshin, is an ex-former IDF soldier uh, representing supposedly an unbiased uh, American uh, negotiator. So. That uh, will have nothing to do with the decision of the parliament, which now has a motion to vote on. Uh, and once that is set, uh, with having the three uh, legislative and, and powers uh, in, in Lebanon all aligned uh, to say that uh, this platform is violating the territorial waters of Lebanon, then we know the response will come from the resistance uh, and supported by the Lebanese army because of that uh, unity in uh, the power centers of the country. You know, I am personally suspecting, I'll throw this in and I have a question for you. I suspect that this is desperation and it is related to the blowback from the Russia sanctions that are causing the energy crisis in in the EU. But let me ask you this. It sounds like you're saying that there is either a possibility or even a likelihood of some kind of a you know, military confrontation between Israel and either Lebanon or Hezbollah or some other groups um, over this. Are you? Do you feel that this that there is a likelihood we could have a military confrontation of some type? Well, it's very likely that we will have a military confrontation if the Israelis respond to an attack on this platform. Uh, it's going to be very simple to sink this platform using either drones uh, or submarine drones or even just, uh, you know, missiles that are directed. And now, what will the Israelis do to, uh, after that happens, will this, I mean, you know, will set the tone of we are going to have a, a larger confrontation. Of course, the situation in Ukraine and the energy crisis globally right now, it is related to this. Um, in, in ways we know that the Israelis have been wanting to connect their, the fields that are, they're looting from the Sea of Palestine to the pipelines in Cyprus and Turkey to replace the, uh, you know, Russian flow, um, that is supposedly be going to be cut off by the end of the year in Europe. Um, now on the, that's on the one hand, the other is the fact that Israel is in crisis. It has uh, lost uh, any legitimacy uh, globally, and you know, without the direct, uh, you know, uh, support of the United States, it has lost also the ability to tell its own colonists that uh, it is a safe place for them to come and colonize, um, and that is now a existential crisis. And so, if you if you notice over the last few weeks and months. The Zionists are increasing their hostilities only to reassert that a fake feeling to themselves and to their colonists that they can exist eternally as looters and as pirates in this region. And uh, now that you know leads them to uh, take uh, tactical maneuvers like this one that are suicidal 
and uh, as we see, it could lead us to a war that they are definitely not ready for. We saw that the, the Israelis, of course, conduct uh, their hugest military exercises in their history in Cyprus last week. And so this could be all related. The mood is set. Uh, and we will see what will happen in the next uh, 24, 48 hours. If something does develop, if if a conflict does break out, how concerned are you about the spreading of it? And who would you expect would be drawn into uh, into the conflict? Look, if Hezbollah uh, does take action, uh, I think the sky is the limit at this point, because we know in Palestine the resistance there, the Palestinian people as a whole, have been uh, aching to blow back at the Zionists as we were going to talk about uh, the other stories there, all the assassinations and killings of uh, civilians that have been happening and the violations of the Aqsa Mosque. And today, by the way, there was uh, uh, you know, Zionist uh, settlers attacking one of the holiest churches in uh, Jerusalem where, um, and I forgot the term, Christian term of uh, when the Holy Ghost supposedly appeared to the apostles after the death of uh, Jesus. And the, that date is, is commemorated in all the churches of the world. Um, and in this specific church, as the beginning of the, uh, the spread of Christianity. And so the Zionist settlers attacked that church last night. And, 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 and so we can see that the, if a uh, confrontation begins um, with Hezbollah and, and Lebanon is bombed, of course, Syria is going to come to the aid and Iran is going to come to the aid. And everybody that has a score to settle with this uh, Zionist uh, abomination in our uh, midst uh, will come to the aid of Lebanon. Middle East uh, Eye reports that four Palestinians were killed by Israeli forces across the West Bank in the span of 24 hours between Wednesday and Thursday, bringing the total number of Palestinians killed this year to 62. In Gaza, a fifth Palestinian uh, succumbed on Wednesday to wounds he sustained in May 2021 uh, during the Israeli offensive against the besieged Strip. Your thoughts, Laith? Yeah, this is, uh, as I was saying um, in inside Palestine uh, the uh, intensity of violence uh, meted by the settlers the colonists and their their military forces is just unbelievable like the uh, you know we saw of course we spoke last week and on, on this uh, same show about the second journalist that was assassinated and uh, you know the list of people that in those you know the four that got killed in the 24 hours, two of them are children. I mean, it's unbelievable how uh, the Zionists are specifically targeting those who are unable to fight back at them. This is total cowardice, killing journalists, killing children. One of those children was was recorded begging the, the, the soldiers not to kill him, you know, and they, they riddled his body with and uh, uh, cornered in a in a in a basement of a house. You know, it's it's unbelievable how they uh, have been acting. And you know, you know, to connect you know, the, all, everything that is happening to that uh, with, with this uh, incursion into Lebanese territorial waters, you can see the Zionists are itching for a beating. 
and they may get it uh, sooner than we all think. I continue to ask this question because I, I'm really befuddled at the motivations behind the uh, Israel, the Zionist Israeli government's actions. What, what is the upside that they see to doing all of this? Look, they, uh, their strategic goal is permanency, is hegemony, right? And so they have tactical maneuvers in front of them. And all those tactical maneuvers to continue this hegemony clearly don't lead to it. They know that there is no way now they can have permanency. They, they a majority of their leaders, including the prime minister yesterday, was talking about the um, they're having they are cursed as a nation. They're worried that they can never make the 80-year mark. And uh, of course, uh, they're right. It's uh, they're not going to make the 80-year mark because the colonial process, uh, uh, you know, is something from an old from the 1800s and the 1900s. You can't colonize a land in the 21st century and genocide its indigenous populations. And what they've attempted to do, uh, you know, like uh, we call Christian European supremacists that uh, came to colonize Palestine in the 1100s, we call them crusaders. And these are Jewish white supremacists coming from Europe to colonize Palestine in the 20th and 21st century. And we should call them Jews-haters, you know. <laughs> it's, 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 it's unbelievable that actually people... Uh, can speak in such ways uh, in in the you know it's acceptable to talk about Zionism as a as a thing of today. No, this is a, a bygone from eras that are done for and the days of American imperialism and Western imperialism that can back such a project are over. We've been talking with Latham Roof, broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. NewsGuard, a censoring group with deep ties to U.S. intelligence agencies, is targeting alternative news sites and working to discredit their work. Joining us to discuss this, we have John Kiriakou. He's a journalist, author, and host of Political Misfits here on Radio Sputnik. John, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. John Kiriakou writes, as Orwellian as the disinformation governance board may be, it's not even the most immediate threat to our freedom of speech. You can find his article, Guarding Democracy from News, Kiriakou, on Sheer Post. That's S-C-H-E-E-R post.com. John, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I'm reading about this, about, and of course, everybody knows about the uh, Disinformation Governance Board and its so-called downfall. Many of us suspect that the uh, the front of it is gone, but the workings behind it is still rolling along. But there's also something called NewsGuard out there that's up to uh, significant miscreant behavior in the field of civil, civil liberties also. John Kiriakou. Yeah, this is a very dangerous development. NewsGuard is a private company, and it was founded by two 
pretty important people. Uh, one was the co-founder of Court TV. The other is the former editor of the Wall Street Journal. So these are, you know, serious people. But where they become not serious people is they've named to the board of directors of their company called NewsGuard people like Michael Hayden, the former director of the CIA, director of the NSA, principal deputy director of national intelligence. They've hired uh, Tom Ridge, the, the first uh, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, who was recently sued for the role that he played in the in the illegal kidnapping and torture of Maher Arar, uh, a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, who was wrongly accused of being an Al Qaeda operative. Uh, they they've hired uh, people like this to pack the board, and then what they do is they. They literally scour the Internet looking for alternative uh, or progressive media outlets and then threatening them with, uh, with what they call a red tag, a red tag that says unreliable, meaning unreliable as a news source. So that if uh, somebody says, oh, I'd like to uh, read something at uh, – at the gray zone, for example, or consortium news or mint press news, uh, and they Google it, it'll have a red tag next to it saying this is an unreliable news outlet. You should move on. Even worse than that, what it does is it, um, it works with the Google algorithm to then push that news site down lower in the feed so that in many cases, you're not even going to be able to choose that news site as something that you might want to read. Now, what happened at Consortium News, and this happened just days after PayPal uh, uh, seized Consortium News' account and the money in the account, $9,300, which they later released, but they won't do business with uh, Consortium News anymore. What, they, what Newsmax did – not Newsmax, sorry, let me do that again. What NewsGuard did at Consortium News was to send first a very nasty email turned out to have been written by this young employee in his 20s whose entire journalism career consisted of two years at a news, uh, a science news website that is now defunct. So you literally can't find anything that this kid ever did as a journalist. And he made these threatening uh, allegations that Consortium News is not a legitimate news site, that it... Um, it spreads propaganda, pro-Russian propaganda, uh, that it doesn't tell people who are on its board. None of this stuff is true, right? You, you go to consortiumnews.com, and there's the, the board of directors uh, right there listed. The history of Consortium News having been founded by the great Robert Perry, uh, an award-winning journalist who broke the Iran-Contra story. All of this is right there on the, on the main site. It's all freely available. Uh, the point is, what they do is they, they collate this information, they put the red tags uh, saying that you're not a, a reliable news site, and then they sell the information to the Pentagon and other uh, entities within the federal government, as well as, as private um, industry, and, uh, and they call it hoax propaganda and disinformation, so that people who work at the Pentagon, for example, know not to go to those websites for news. Now, 
What they've done to Consortium News is very, very similar to what PayPal did to Consortium News. Joe Loria, who's the uh, editor-in-chief now of Consortium News, uh, was was very patient when this first started happening, far more patient than I would have been. And what he did is he called uh, PayPal to ask why the account was frozen. And after half a day on hold, finally got through to a, a human being who spoke out of turn, who, who answered his questions when she probably shouldn't have. And she said that there was no obvious violation of the terms of service agreement. There had been no complaints about consortium news that triggered this uh, seizure of the account, but that um, they didn't like consortium news's position on the Ukraine-Russia dispute. And this is the same thing that, that consortium news others are getting from NewsGuard. They just don't like the fact that consortium news is questioning the official mainstream media narrative on the Ukraine-Russia affair. That's what this comes down to. And, you know, what I think is also very important for people to understand, and this is cited in Joe Loria's article, is that NewsGuard is a private corporation, so it does not have to abide by the constitutional First Amendment obligations that the government does. So this is really a way to obfuscate or to go around uh, First Amendment constitutional protections. And also, I think it's important for people to understand, to think back to Liz, to, I'm sorry, to Lynn Cheney, uh, Dick Cheney's wife, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I believe chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities, and how she led an attack on on, profess, on college professors who they deemed to be too liberal. So this has been an ongoing attack. There are a number of dots that can be connected here. Uh, and it's not only an attack through the media, it's also an attack through academia. You're absolutely right. And this is what they want. They want to smother dissent. They don't want anything that's outside the official narrative. You know, I hate to use this word because I think that it's overused, but this really is the definition of fascism, is it not? I think it is. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we've, we've got our friend Max Blumenthal, who's the founder of, of The Gray Zone. Max went about his response to NewsGuard differently than, uh, than those of us at Consortium News. Max didn't challenge them. He ignored them, and he said he wears their red tag as a red badge of courage, a red badge of honor. They can call him whatever name they want. Um, he's not going to take the bait, and that's one way of doing it. Joe Loria responded with a 68-page point-by-point uh, uh, response after having consulted attorneys and academics and, and government people and other journalists. So there are a couple of ways to do this, but, you know, this is, this is dangerous, and it's a money-making venture for these people. They've got practically – they have access to a practically unlimited budget at the Pentagon, and, um, you know, they're not going to make money by telling people that alternative news sites are, uh, are not subversive, right? This is how they make their money. You know, John, I think one of the important things that Joe did in his article, U.S. affiliated, state affiliated news guard targets, U.S. Uh, consortium news is he made it clear that they're being that the consortium news is being accused of publishing false content on Ukraine. But then he goes 
point by point to demonstrate that all of the assertions made in about the Ukraine crisis in Consortium, in Consortium News are well substantiated, which brings us back to something that what you said before is they don't like Consortium News's position on Ukraine. They don't want the truth to get out about Ukraine. They have a false narrative and people like us the three of us who are simply acting as responsible journalists are, are, are providing the truth. This is really a war on information, not a war on disinformation. John. Oh, you're exactly right. That's what this comes down to. You know, a, another example besides Ukraine is this, this purported uh, sarin gas tap that took place a couple of years ago in Syria. The official line was Bashar al-Assad gassed his own people. He's a war criminal. He should hang for it. And then um, OPCW whistleblowers came out and said, look, we found no evidence on the ground to indicate that this was uh, launched by the Syrian government. No evidence at all. And the United Nations and others tried to cover up the report by the, uh, by the whistleblowers. And when the whistleblower's statement didn't, uh, didn't align with the official narrative. They were silenced, and those of us writing about it were silenced. But the fact remains that there was no proof that the Syrians did it. You know, the Washington Post even wrote about this uh, and about a conversation that a, a former colleague of mine, uh, Brian Becker, and I had on our Sputnik show, uh, Loud and Clear. We talked about the whistleblowers coming out of uh, the uh, United Nations and saying that this wasn't true. And they attacked us as being propaganda mouthpieces for the, for the Kremlin. Well, you know what? Either the information that we're offering to people is true or it's not. And I like to think that my information is based on facts. I actually do my research before I say something publicly whether the Washington Post uh, or the, the both right and left wing think tanks in Washington like it or not. You close your piece by writing independent voices must be heard. Freedom of speech and press were among the basic tenets upon which this country was founded. We should all be willing to fight to keep those freedoms. And now we have to take the fight to private corporations and even to our own government. Are we guarding the news against misinformation or are we guarding the country from the news? Your thoughts as we close. I think that's it. This is a real fight. This is something that is so critically important and at the same time is easily overlooked. If we give just a little bit on this, it's going to be a slippery slope to, to trolling the narrative on every major story in America. And we, we can't concede like that. We can't allow big, wealthy, private companies and the government to decide what we read and what we see and what we consume. It's not up to them. So we have to fight for our rights. I think you're right, John. And, and I think additionally, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I, I know I am prejudiced towards it. But personally, I think Consortium News is one of the finest media outlets available. The level of professionalism that they require for their writers, the level of substantiation and research that they that they require for their articles is, you know, there's no one out there. But I love Mint Press News, but Consortium News is one of my favorites. Oh, I 
Garland, I, like you, I am so proud to be associated with, with Consortium News. It's such a fine group of journalists. You know, we work with the likes of, of uh, Chris Hedges, who's won a Pulitzer Prize from his time at the, at the New York Times, with John Pilger, uh, with a whole host of people who are seriously accomplished people in their field. You know, this isn't a group of malcontents that just want to yell about the government or about international affairs. These are serious journalists, serious academics, and I'm proud to be associated with them. Yeah, and might I add, no one has been more out front on the issue of Julian Assange than um, Joe Loria. And, uh, oh, and- you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. I think that we should all or we can all be proud of Joe Loria and the work that he has done on behalf of Julian Assange. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. We've been talking with John Kiriakou. He's a journalist. He's an author and co-host of Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The people of Africa see the military operation in Ukraine through a unique perspective. Also, why is the Russian intellectual class hardening their support for Ukraine? Joining us to discuss these important issues, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's a historian, researcher, author of many books, not the least of which being his newest book. It's called The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. You can find it online wherever books are sold. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. Responsible statecraft, as usual, you have to take all of their articles with a grain of salt at the least, writes, African policymakers and civil society opinion makers like their counterparts around the world share no consensus on the war in Ukraine. Its uh, impact is undeniable as the economic fallout for Africa has been profound, not least in the shortages of wheat and fertilizer from the region. Dr. Horn, your thoughts on the African perspective on the military operation in Ukraine? Well, there's a growing hysteria in the North Atlantic bloc about the role of Africa in this conflict in Central and Eastern Europe. Interestingly enough, uh, many of our friends on the left with tunnel vision, when they analyze this question, their view goes from Washington to Ukraine to Moscow with nary a peak at what's going on in the rest of the world. But the North Atlantic bloc cannot afford such tunnel vision. And given the reality that they were catapulted into global prominence, not least by the machinations of the unlimited African slave trade, and then continuing to use Africa as a reserve and as a source for exploitation of oil, of natural gas, etc., we should take their critique of Africa very seriously. In that regard, look at this morning's New York Times, where on the front page, there is an implicit critique of Senegalese leader Mackie Saul, also titular chair of the African Union, the Continental 
based organization uh, that is based in uh, Ethiopia uh, for daring to visit Sochi, Russia. And on the front page of the New York Times, they have Mackie Saul referring to, quote, my dear Vladimir, unquote, and referring to the president of Russia. And that was basically designed as a slap at Mackie Saul and at the African Union and at those African nations, which, as the article points out, are trying to avoid being dragged into the sanctions crusade. Interestingly enough, the Congressional Black Caucus, as we've mentioned previously on this program, have not bathed themselves in glory with regard to this conflict. Instead of rising to the defense of their African brothers and sisters, which the rhetoric would lead us to believe would be their position, instead, Congressman Gregory Meeks of the CBC and of Southeast Queens, New York, has carried legislation that would punish African nations for daring to not join the sanctions train against Moscow. I think that this is a moment for sober reflection. If we had a more democratic country, the entire foreign policy establishment would be summarily fired, if not worse, because that establishment basically cut a deal with China 50 years ago against the interests of Moscow and poured U.S. direct foreign investment into China, creating a juggernaut, denuding the industrial base of the United States, leading to the rise of this right-wing populism. And obviously, they did not think through the consequences of the breakup of the Soviet Union, on which they spent trillions, and in which they imprisoned and persecuted those not willing to go along, because, okay, you don't want a socialist Soviet Union. You want to break up the Soviet Union into its constituent elements. You succeed in that. And emerging from the ashes is Russia. Soviet Union has 250 million population. Russia has 160 million population. But still, it is able to maintain the nuclear arsenal. It's able to maintain most of the mineral resources. And so you basically push, create, in some senses, a capitalist class in Russia that's then going to compete with you for resources in Africa and globally. And then instead of fighting Russia into your uh, capitalist club, speaking of the Group of Seven, it was once the Group of Eight, you then expelled them because I guess you can't stand the competition, and now you're at war with them. As I said, if there were justice, if there was more democracy, we would force all of these foreign policy mandarins to walk the plank. There is, a, I think, a very telling uh, paragraph or two paragraphs in this responsible statecraft piece. Uh, it reads, for Africans, the war in Ukraine is a painful reminder that Western foreign policy priorities, in part as reflected by mainstream Western media outlets, are still shaped primarily by racial bias and geopolitical rivalries rather than the urgent global issues that face Africa and the world. And I would throw in there just as an example, wheat and fertilizer. And then it goes on to say, for Africans as well as others who have lived in Africa or worked on African issues, the disproportionate attention given to this war featuring white people compared to more deadly ongoing wars in Africa is a sad repeat of biases that were pervasive during the first Cold War. So I, I think th- that those are very real uh, realities that unfortunately 
uh, get summarily dismissed if discussed at all. There are practical applications here that are being ignored, but Joe Biden still wants to talk about sovereignty and democracy and respecting the will of people uh, to dictate their leaders how they want to be governed. But unfortunately, that doesn't seem to apply when those when the American interests are being challenged. Well, unfortunately, tragically and sadly, only the most deluded and naive of forces on the U.S. left believe the fantasy are able to successfully launch a boycott, divestment and sanctions crusade against Russia that will serve as a president and as impetus for a boycott, divestment and sanctions crusade against Israel. Obviously, that's not going to happen. Obviously, there's a double standard with regard to international relations. Uh, Even the most naive should be forced to acknowledge that reality, which, of course, then brings us to how Haitians are treated when they try to enter the United States of America, where you see these full-page ads in major newest newspapers with corporations like Booking.com trumpeting the fact of how they're giving all of these benefits to Ukrainian refugees. And we're supposed to be naive and sufficiently deluded to believe that the Haitians are just waiting in line to be accorded the benefits that are accorded to the Ukrainians. That's lunacy. It's fantasy. It's not going to happen. And in fact, it's insulting. And in fact, it's an apologia for racism because that's all that it is. Uh, Let me ask you this also. You know, we're talking about Africa, but I believed for a while when I started seeing the reactions, when I looked at the U.S. going to Asia, going to countries like Indonesia, Vietnam, and places where Cambodia, where the U.S. has literally perpetrated genocides, going to South America and being shocked that the Latin Americans um, wouldn't support, were supporting Russia over the U.S. Same with the Middle East after, after you know, the years of um, colonialism from the U.S. and the, the Europeans. I believe to some extent that this conflict has opened that scab of colonialism, centuries of colonialism, and that a big part of this, even China, is about having been colonialized by the U.S. and even prior to that by various European empires, and that this is maybe, they see this as their chance to push back on all of those centuries of colonialism. Your thoughts, sir? Well, certainly it's a chance to push back against hypocrisy, and that's all that we're talking about. I mean, look at Saudi Arabia, for example. Uh, There's back and forth on whether Mr. Biden will receive the uh, ignominious privilege of going to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and being forced to bend the knee and kiss the ring of the de facto leader of Mohammed bin Salman in an effort to get Saudis to pump more gasoline or pump more oil so that the price of gasoline at the pump will head downward from the $10, $11 per gallon to which it is heading. But what's happening is that uh, the Saudis are making Mr. Biden twist slowly in the wind. They once did not receive his phone calls, that's as of a month or two ago, and now they're jerking his chain by once more saying that we'll meet with you and then backing off. There's grumbling in the State Department that there is a de facto alliance in the organization known as OPEC+, Plus speaking of the Saudi-led OPEC plus Russia, 
that is conspiring jointly against Washington, at least that's what the State Department thinks. And indeed, if you go back to the Group of 20 meeting that took place in Argentina a couple of years ago, go back and look at the pictures between Mohammed bin Salman and President Putin. They seemed quite chummy at the time. And so despite the fact that the Saudis are dependent upon the United States for arms to fight their inglorious war in Yemen, uh, despite the fact that the Saudis are, are upset with the United States for seeking, at least appearing to seek, a nuclear arms accord with Iran, it appears that the Saudis are playing hard to get. In fact, if you look at the $2 billion they've given to Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, to play with, you would not be far wrong to suspect that the Saudis are basically making an investment in a Trump victory in November 2024 and are just stalling Biden until he's ousted from office. Uh, this is the contradiction in which the Biden administration has led this country. There's another interesting article in Responsible Statecraft, something I've been hearing a lot about, and that is about how the intellectuals, as they put them, are hardening their support for the war in Ukraine. And that is there was a group of uh, a, an element that was very pro-West, a lot of academics, but uh, that were pro-Western in um, in Russia and people expected them to side with the rest and due to a number to the West, due to a number of things, even those group, that group now is siding with Putin. And it seems like he's getting up around 90 percent. I'm seeing numbers of support in Russia for the Ukrainian operation. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to cite the words of the late Osama bin Laden during the height of his seeming ascension, suggested that folks in the Arab world were seeing his movement as the strong horse and seeing U.S. imperialism as the weak horse. I think that those intellectuals in Russia that you're pointing to they're seeing their country as the strong horse. They're seeing the inflation-wracked North Atlantic bloc as the weak horse. They're looking at the fact that in the last few months, uh, China-Russia trade conducted in the currencies of both nations has increased by a 1,000%. They're looking at the possible advent of a digital Chinese currency, which will allow China to lap up money from all over the world, including in Washington, D.C., uh, ironically enough. And they're saying, why should the weak horse be back when we're already riding the strong horse? This is something for everyone in Washington, D.C., not least in Foggy Bottom, to contemplate. Well, quickly, they also seem to listen to the American rhetoric and, and feel that America is threatening the very existence of their country. Well, you need, you need to look at the headlines about this major weaponry being shipped to Ukraine, which will threaten the cities in Western Russia at least. They have good reason to fret. We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas, and a researcher, historian, and author of his latest book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. In a shameful opinion that broke down along ideological lines, the right-wingers on the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 this month that people who receive ineffective assistance of counsel are not entitled to present new evidence to prove their innocence in federal court. And additionally, California is the first state in the U.S. to establish a reparations task force for black Americans. Joining us to discuss these two stories, both written by Marjorie Cohn, I might add, is Marjorie Cohn, professor of emeritus of law at the time Jefferson School of Law in beautiful, sunny San Diego, California. Marjorie Cohn, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Garland and Wilmer. California is the first state in the U.S. to establish a reparations task force for black Americans. On June 1st, the task force to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans issued a 500-page document that traces the history of white supremacy from slavery to Jim Crow through the present. Marjorie, and you'll find this at Truth Out. The name of the article is Landmark California Task Force Calls for Comprehensive Reparations for Slavery, and it's written by the one and only Marjorie Cohn. Marjorie, your thoughts? Well, this is really historic because it's the first time there's been a government task force to study reparations. Um, Thirty years ago, Congressman John Conyers introduced a H.R. 40, um, which would set up a task force to study reparations, um, but really it has not received any traction, and I can talk about that. There are enough votes in the House now for H.R. 40, not in the Senate, however. Um, but California, which might surprise people, was one of the states that had the worst record on white supremacy um, since, since slavery, set up this task force in September of 2020 after the California legislature um, mandated under AB 3121 that the task force recommend appropriate remedies, including compensation, rehabilitation, and restitution for African Americans, particularly descendants of people who were enslaved in the United States. And this 500-page report, which was just issued on June the 1st, documents a history of white supremacy from slavery to Jim Crow and through the present and calls for comprehensive reparations. Now, the report does not include detailed proposals for reparations, but lays the foundation for the work of this task force in the coming year where it will develop a specific reparations plan. One of the things that uh, of many that are of note. You write, another consequence of racist government policies and practices is the pathologizing of the black family. As of 2019, while black children comprise only 14% of American children, 23% of them were in foster care. This is not because parent, black parents mistreat, mistreat their children. It's rather a result of racist systems and poverty. When we look at so many of the issues that are impacting this country that are attributed to race, many of them come down to systemic racism and poverty. Absolutely. 
Um, the report says, and I quote, segregation, racial terror, harmful racist neglect, and other atrocities in nearly every sector of civil society have inflicted harms which cascade over a lifetime and compound over generations. And the key findings in this report um, talk about the enshrining of white supremacy um, from colonial times forward by the government at all levels in order to maintain slavery and a system of dehumanization and exploitation that stole the life, labor, liberty, and intellect of people of African descent. Um, and they, it talks about racial terror, um, not just isolated hate crimes, but part of a systematic campaign of terror to enforce the racial hierarchy. And of course, that includes lynchings, among other things. Police violence against and extrajudicial killings of African Americans, um, which we've seen with the public execution of George Floyd and the ubiquitous police murders of black people all over this country. But this police violence also occurs in California the same way it does in the rest of the country. The task force report documents political disenfranchisement of African Americans and cites California's voter suppression laws that provided a model for those in the South, discusses housing segregation through redlining, zoning ordinances, and California's sundown towns, which required that African Americans leave by dusk or face violence. It documents separate and unequal education. Um, Brown versus Board of Education held in 1954 that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. But nevertheless, Congress and the courts have erected barriers to integration of schools. California, some people might be surprised to know, is the sixth most segregated state in the country for African-American students. Um, the report also details racism in the environment and the infrastructure, poor quality housing for African-Americans, uh, large amounts of lead poisoning, um, and black people more likely than white people to live in overcrowded housing and near-hazardous waste sites. Also, redlining and racially restrictive covenants and racial violence has led to the exclusion of black Californians from access to clean water in the agriculturally rich San Joaquin Valley. Um, the pathologizing of the black family, which you mentioned, and also control over creative, cultural, and intellectual life, failing to protect black artists from discrimination, allowing whites to steal black art and culture with impunity, depriving black creators of valuable patent and copyright protections. And California has criminalized African-American rap artists and allowed rap lyrics to be introduced as evidence in cases involving street gang activity. The tough on crime and war on drugs era um, led to the criminalization of African Americans by politicians in order to win elections. And this includes over-policing of black communities, the school-to-prison pipeline, mass incarceration of African Americans, um, a wealth gap 
between uh, black and white Americans and mental and physical harm, um, race-related stress, which the report says could have even a greater impact on the health of African Americans than diet, exercise, smoking, etc. So some really, really critical um, uh, findings here. And, uh, and I think that it's at 500 pages, it's really comprehensive, and I strongly urge people to read this. Um, the report of the task force to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans. Uh, thank you, California. Uh, uh, Marjorie, if you could talk about a, 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 an interesting sec- section, the pre- preliminary recommendations. One thing that struck out to me, because I've said uh, for a long time, if I ever ran, ran for president, the first thing I'd say is we got to outlaw slavery because the 13th Amendment still allows slavery. And in that we have, you know, the, if you go to prison, you're going to find poor people, you're going to find people of color, and they are allowed to be enslaved. They're allowed to work without compensation. But if you could talk about that and some some of the other uh, the pre- preliminary recommendations and what you think about them. Yes, well, the recommendations include deleting language in the California Constitution that allows involuntary servitude as punishment for crime, and that is prisoners working and not getting paid for their work. You know, I was in Cuba a few years back, and we went to visit a prison, and all of the prisoners work there and get a living wage and support their families and feel productive and come out uh, rehabilitated, but not so in the U.S. and particularly California. Um, Another recommendation is the enactment of legislation that prioritizes education education, substance abuse, and mental health treatment, and rehabilitation programs for people who are incarcerated, uh, compensation for work they perform while in prison, and uh, giving prisoners the right to vote. And this is people who have been convicted of felonies. Um, Also, other recommendations involve making it easier to hold law enforcement officers, including correctional officers, accountable for unlawful uh, harassment and violence. Um, and uh, governmental acknowledgement and apology for political disenfranchisement, legislation to prevent redistricting that dilutes the voting power of black Californians, elimination of anti-black housing discrimination policies, and low interest rates for qualified black mortgage applicants in California. Um, Also, it recommends the elimination of racial bias in standardized testing, free tuition to California colleges and universities, and college scholarships for black high school graduates. Um, This is a really key part of the recommendations. Um, It it, uh, advocates, quote, a K through 12 black studies curriculum that introduces students to concepts of race and racial identity accurately depicts historic racial inequities and systemic racism, honors black lives, fully represents contributions of black people in society, and advances the ideology of black liberation. That's a very, very powerful statement. And in these days of this issue of critical race theory being bandied about, even though it's really an academic theory at the law school level and they don't teach critical race theory in the, in the elementary school, um, it's been used, critical race theory has been used by the radical 
right-wingers um, to basically promote a white supremacist agenda. And we saw um, these accusations come out during the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson for Supreme Court uh, nominate the nomination um, and Ted Cruz holding up a book um, deriding the teaching of of young kids how not to be racist and sure enough after that hearing uh, that particular book went to the top of the charts in, uh, in Amazon which I thought was very ironic. You have a piece in Truth Out, right-wing Supreme Court tacitly approved the execution of innocent people. Uh, how so? Well, this is really an outrageous opinion, and, you know, some of it comes under the radar. It seems to be kind of obscure legal concepts, the, you know, the abortion issue and gun rights and these other things grab the headlines. But this is every bit as dangerous as these other things that uh, have have seized the headlines, and that is that in May the Supreme Court ruled six to three with the right wingers in the majority um, that basically um, people are not allowed to demonstrate their innocence in federal court um, in death penalty cases or other cases as well, and this could lead to the execution of innocent people. Um, Sonia Sotomayor, who I think is the most progressive uh, member of the Supreme Court, and I think she's overtaken Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well, who was was great and unfortunately refused to step down when when she should have. But um, Sotomayor wrote in dissent that this opinion, and we're talking about Shin versus Ramirez and Jones, uh, Sotomayor wrote on behalf of herself, uh, Breyer and Kagan, that it reduces to rubble many Sixth Amendment constitutional rights. Um, and this, it, basically, it faults defendants for not raising the issue of ineffective assistance of counsel um, when they could not have raised it in the first place because their counsel was ineffective. It's, it's really like a catch-22. Um, and uh, there were two cases that were consolidated uh, for decision in this particular case. Okay. In one, um, the federal court found that uh, he was the jury would probably find him innocent if he was allowed to present evidence. And the other, uh, David Ramirez, was um, so had suffered from such an intellectual disability uh, from eating on the floor, sleeping on a dirty mattress, filthy with animal feces, mother beating him with electrical cords as he was growing up. If that evidence had been presented, he very well might have received life without parole instead of the death penalty. But we have here two defendants who very well may be executed because the Supreme Court, um, this right-wing Supreme Court, has said um, that they could not present evidence of their uh, innocence and of these other uh, other claims. And ironically, in a footnote, the right-wingers excused the state of Arizona from uh, objecting to the claim, saying, you know, they can they, it, it basically uh, in a total hypocrisy, faulting the defendants for not raising their claims when they had incompetent counsel, but allowing Arizona to raise its claims when it had uh, missed the deadline as well.
You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out. 